Hello and welcome to Startup. I'm Alex Bloomberg, occasional co-host of the Startup Podcast, co-founder of Gimlet Media, the company making this podcast, and many others. And it is possible that this is your first time hearing my voice, or hearing the Startup Podcast, or hearing a podcast at all. It's possible that you found your way here because of a TV show on ABC called Alex Inc., which stars Zach Braff and is based on this podcast that you're listening to right now. If that is you, I say, welcome. I'm the Alex Alex Inc. is based on, which is really weird, but more on that later. It's also possible that you're a regular listener of the Startup Podcast and you're like, wait, what? There's a TV show based on Startup starring Zach Braff? Yes. Yes, there is. But as I said, more on that later. For now, no matter who you are, you should all sit back and relax because you're about to hear the original podcast, which launched the TV show you may or may not be here because of. This is the first of five startup episodes we're re-releasing today, ahead of the debut of Alex Inc., which airs Wednesdays, 8.30 Eastern, 7.30 Central, on ABC. And you can think of these episodes we're re-releasing as the startup podcast's greatest hits compilation. Even if you're an existing listener who's been with us from the beginning, stick around because, well, sometimes it's fun to just tool down memory lane, but also because at the end of each of these five episodes, we have some special updates. I'll be speaking with some familiar voices from those first startup episodes, and I'll also be answering listener questions about where we are today and what it's like to be the subject of a network family comedy. So stick around after this episode for that. For now, let's go back to where it all started. Season one, episode one, how not to pitch a billionaire. And quick language warning, there's a small, mild curse word in this episode. I'm Alex Bloomberg, and for a long time I was a producer at the public radio show This American Life, and also the co-creator of a podcast called Planet Money, where for years I reported on business and the economy. It was a great gig until I decided to do something rash. I decided to take what I learned from reporting on other people's businesses and start my own business. Are you meeting... Someone with money? <laughs> this is my wife, Nazanin, early one morning a couple months ago, stopping me as I was on my way out the door to do something I'd never done before. Meet a guy who works at a venture capital firm and try to get him to give me money. To invest in my business. A podcast business. I love podcasts. I love making them. I love listening to them. But there's all kinds of podcasts out there, from a couple people talking around a mic to the kind that I make and that I have a particular soft spot for, which focus on storytelling and journalism. Those podcasts, they take way more money and resources and time than the other ones. And probably because of this, there aren't that many of them. To me, it seems like there aren't enough of them. It seems like someone should come up with money to invest in making new shows like these and come up with a theory about how those shows could be profitable. I kept waiting for someone to do that. And then came this thought, a thought that's gotten a lot of people into a lot of trouble. The thought, well... I could do that. You don't like these tennis shoes? No, they're fine. At a certain point, I realized starting this company, this is a story. A story a business reporter like me would have killed for, with behind-the-scenes access to all these embarrassing details that never get reported. Like, for example, when you're about to make your first ever pitch to an investor, how do you dress? Business formal? Tech casual? My wife took issue with my shoes. They're fine. They're just, there'd be a higher chance that he's going to give you money if you're not wearing running shoes. Do you think that's true? These are the only shoes that I can wear that my feet don't hurt. <laughs> so yes, you are listening to the first episode of a podcast mini-series I'm making about the starting of my podcast company. Meta, I know. I've been recording pitches to investors, difficult negotiations with my co-founder, tense conversations with my wife. 
I'm calling this miniseries Startup. It'll be six to eight episodes or so, airing roughly every other week. And I'm in the middle of things right now. I have no idea how this all ends. What I do know, we have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. My wife has a demanding job where she works till 11 o'clock most nights a week. I'm leaving a full-time job with a good salary and benefits for an uncertain future. Our plan, if you can call it that, is to spend down our meager savings, go into debt, and hope it works out. I have a lot of anxiety. Nazneen has a lot of anxiety, which is all focused at this moment on which shoes I should wear. I don't know, you think these look better? I'm not sure they look better. I think these look like nursing shoes. Why did you buy them? To play tennis in. Oh, they're like actual tennis shoes. Oh, okay, then yeah, wear the other ones. (laughs) There are over 28 million businesses in America, and I imagine they almost all started the way mine is, with nothing but a story. A story I'm telling not just to my investors, but to my wife and to myself. That story that we all tell ourselves, when I'm telling myself too. I'm the guy in the garage with a great idea. I am Steve Jobs. Not the real Steve Jobs, of course. The Steve Jobs of HVAC repair. The Steve Jobs of farm-to-table gastropubs. Or in my case, the Steve Jobs of 20 to 40 minute weekly podcasts. The problem is, most of us are emphatically not Steve Jobs. Of the hundreds of thousands of businesses that start every year, only three in 10 survive out the decade. This podcast is the origin story you never actually hear, set down before the facts can fade into sunny startup mythology. The most honest and transparent account I can make about something that happens every day in this country, but we hardly ever see firsthand. Starting a business. Chris? All right. Hey, how's it going? Good, good, good. Thanks for meeting me. It's Friday lunch, mid-spring, and I'm at a hole-in-the-wall sushi place on Pico Boulevard in Los Angeles. I've flown out here from my home in New York to meet a guy named Chris Saka. Chris is the kind of guy that people like me need to sell our story to. He's a professional investor. Now, before I was in public radio, I was a teacher, and before that, a social worker. I've worked in nonprofits my entire life. If I actually start this business, CEO of my own company will be the first full-time job in the private sector I've ever had. All this to say, Chris Saka and I traditionally run in different circles. But this is where covering business helps. I met Chris on a Planet Money story I worked on about the patent system and how it seemed to be slowing innovation in Silicon Valley. Chris had a lot to say on the subject, so I ended up talking to him for a while. Years later, when I was starting this company, I reached out to him about being an investor. Honestly, he was one of the only people I knew who did this for a living, invested in stuff. And he remembered me. Turns out he's a fan of This American Life. And so he said, sure, come on out, we'll talk. And I knew that Chris was successful, but I didn't realize exactly how successful until over lunch, he told me his own origin story. It started back when he was a strategy and ideas guy, working at Google. Yeah, I was still at Google when I wrote my first seed investment check. It was in a company called Photobucket. The guys at Photobucket needed money to get their company off the ground. Chris wanted to give them that money. There was just one problem. I didn't actually have the money required. And they said, hey man, it's, it's easy, it's a $50,000 minimum check. And I was like, yeah, sure, okay. And so I wrote two credit card checks to cover it. They, they said all we need is 50 grand and you didn't have 50 grand. No, I, I definitely didn't have 50 grand. But if, you're, if you worked at Google, you were perceived to be a millionaire automatically. So of course, uh, I would just assume that I had that kind of money, and I definitely didn't. But Chris loved this feeling, placing early bets on companies he believed in. So he saved up a little money and left Google to become what they call in Silicon Valley a full-time angel investor. Turns out he had a good nose for picking winners. 
One of Chris's first investments as a full-time angel was in a company a former colleague of his at Google was starting. That colleague's name, Evan Williams. The company, Twitter. Evan showed Chris an early prototype of the idea. It was compelling and a little bit addictive and released dopamine every time your phone buzzed with a new tweet. And it played on a little bit of narcissism and exhibitionism and exploration. All these things were happening that were pretty exciting. And so when Ev gave me the chance to invest in that company, I found it irresistible. He wrote a check for 25 grand, which he probably had no business doing. He had a little money, sure, but 25 grand was still a lot of cash to him. Unlike the majority of investors in Silicon Valley, who Chris says can break off a check for 25 grand like it's nothing. He really needed his bet to pay off. So he just started showing up at the headquarters of Twitter, trying to help out however he could. He also became a huge evangelist for the company, talking it up to anyone who'd listen, trying to drum up investors. And eventually, I had this revelation. I was like, fuck it, why am I putting all my energy into trying to convince these people? Instead of convincing everybody else it's going to be valuable, if I actually deeply believe that, then I should just start buying all the stock I can find. Which he did. Dug deeper into his savings, took a bet he already had no business making, and doubling it. And doubling it again. To say this gamble paid off is an understatement. Chris Saka wouldn't say exactly how much he personally owns of Twitter, but at the time of Twitter's IPO, his venture funds owned the single largest stake in the company, roughly 15%. Twitter currently is valued over $20 billion. For Chris, what began with a single $25,000 investment is now a stake worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, one Twitter in your portfolio is something any investor would dream of. Chris has a lot more than one. Kickstarter, Instagram, Uber. He was an early investor in all of them. And he's developed something of a philosophy for successful investing. Sure, you evaluate the idea, you look at the numbers, kick the tires, that's all important. But he says he also looks hard at the conviction of the people who are pitching him. The ideas that we back and the entrepreneurs we back, there's so much conviction about the inevitability of success. It's contagious. I mean, when I first sat down with Kevin Systrom, the founder of Instagram, and he started talking about why Instagram and pitching me on why I should get involved there. I sat down with in the back of my mind, look, photo sharing has been done a bunch of times. Uh, I feel lucky to have already gotten some money back out of photo bucket before. Like I might be the one guy who is in, who made money in photo sharing and there's no way lightning's gonna strike twice. But as you listen to him, you get the perception that he's actually looking through you to some spot behind you that's five years in the future and he just knows the inevitability of the success of his platform. And by the end of the conversation, you're like, please take my money. So what starts as this like, all right, kid, what do you, what, what do you got? It's just like, wow, let me get on this thing. The train is leaving the station. This was thrilling to hear because that conviction, I actually feel it. And conviction in general is a pretty rare feeling for me. I'm much more intimate with doubt and ambivalence. And Chris is like a teacher handing me the answers to a test he's about to give, explaining exactly what he wants to see from me in order to invest in my company. I need to project conviction, check. And I need to instill FOMO. For you non-millennials, FOMO is an acronym, fear of missing out. Airbnb, multi-billion dollar business, right? I was one of the first people to see the Airbnb pitch. And I pulled them aside and said, guys, this is super dangerous. You're renting out a room in somebody's house while they're still there. Somebody's gonna get raped or murdered and the blood is gonna be on your hands. There's no way this will succeed. That's a $10 billion business today that I'm not an investor in. 
Dropbox. I saw the Dropbox guys and I was like, this is great and everything, but Google's gonna crush you. They have a thing internally called G Drive and it's gonna absolutely crush Dropbox. There's no way this thing's going to succeed. That's a $10 billion business today that I'm not an investor in. A $10 billion business that I'm not an investor in? That is FOMO. Once you have FOMO on your side, says Chris, you no longer have to ask people like him for money. They're lining up to give it to you. Coming up, I make my pitch to Chris, but first, a word from our sponsor. So I traveled out to see Chris Sacco with what's called a pitch deck, which is basically a PowerPoint on a laptop telling the story of what my company is going to do and how it's going to make money. Not surprisingly, you can read a lot on the internet about how to make a killer pitch deck. And like screenplays, pitch decks are supposed to follow a standard 3X structure. What's the problem out there? How is my company going to solve that problem? And how is solving that problem going to make huge amounts of money for everyone? And usually, there's a conference room, maybe even a large screen monitor, where you plug your computer into, show your PowerPoint. But after lunch, Chris says, OK, let's take a walk. You can give me your pitch. And that's how it came to pass that right there on the sidewalk along West Pico Boulevard, I made my pitch to Chris Saka. Well, I have a deck, which I'm like, which yeah, I've yeah, used yeah, for people. Yeah, but it, it, it was a crutch. I got used to it. All right. So what's my, yeah. So yeah, pretty much immediately, all the so, confidence that I felt during the lunch evaporates. Remember the structure, Bloomberg, I tell myself. Problem, right. solution, money. Here's the problem. In the world of audio right now, most people consume... The, the kind of audio journalism that I do, most, of, most people consume it over the radio. Those people are leaving the radio in droves and they're migrating to digital. They're migrating to digital listening. The number of, obviously, smartphone handsets are going through the roof. The audio dashboard is becoming digital. iTunes radio, podcasting is all gonna be on your dashboard. Um, and there's this whole world of so there's all these people going there and I want to start a company that will create the content for all these people to listen to who are like moving into the digital future slash present. Digital future slash present? Who says that? If I'm honest, I sound like a douchebag dropping all this jargon instead of saying listening to the radio, saying consuming audio. Also, notice how the more nervous I become the higher my voice gets. So you're, you're uniquely positioned to do it because you're better at it than anybody? Yeah, I am. I apologize for that. I'm doing so badly that Chris is now stepping in and feeding me lines. One question he asked, what is my unfair advantage? I knew this was a critical question, but I had no idea how to answer it. Not only do I sound like a douchebag, I'm not even doing it that well. I'm the wrong kind of douchebag. Still, I sallied forth. I explained to Chris my plan on how to make money. Ads, of course, but the second main revenue source, you guys, listeners. Not that we would charge for podcasts, but for those of you who don't obsessively read everything written about the future of media, there's this concept called freemium. It basically means you make your stuff for free, and then you offer a little something extra that some percentage of your listeners will pay for. One time we did this on Planet Money. We did a project where we followed a t-shirt around the world and interviewed the farmers and factory workers involved in making it. We offer that shirt for sale, and our listeners bought a lot of them, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth. And after years of being in public radio and doing the pledge drive and begging people for money and talking about we need this to keep the lights on, this project felt refreshingly straightforward. Here's something we made. Do you guys want to buy it? Great. So that's how I explain it now. 
Here's how I explained it to Chris in the language of douchebag. And I believe there is a huge opportunity in audio specifically to really do the thing that all media is dreaming of doing, which is making this, making this freemium model work. As I watched Chris Saka's face cycle from bored to confused to annoyed, I realized despite being given the answers to this test ahead of time, I'm still somehow failing. I am generating no FOMO in Chris Saka's heart. If anything, I'm generating the opposite. You gotta tighten up your story. So the- We'll start again. Yeah. So you've now kind of meandered right. really tight this time, how you're gonna make money doing this? So you, you make money a combination. So there's three major, there's three major revenues streams. I start again. I meander my way through the ad rates, planet money, at a certain point, I find myself deep into an explanation of my friend's successful Kickstarter project. So, Chris um, interrupted. You lost track of your own outline. Yeah, I did. What you, what you haven't given me is the outline of your story, right? Uh -huh. If I were calling an Uber right now and it said, it's going to be here in two minutes, and that was all the time you had, uh -huh. what are you doing? So I'm making a network of digital podcasts uh, that we will monitor, that, that will, that will, that is going to meet. <laughs> Sorry. I'm imagining the people out there listening right now who actually know who Chris Saka is. I didn't realize his reputation when I first arranged to meet him. I thought he was just a rich guy in Silicon Valley. But after enough conversations with people who were like, you're meeting with Chris Saka? I realized that in this world, he is this huge kingpin. Not a murderous criminal underworld kingpin, a universally admired, really friendly billionaire kingpin that pretty much everybody with a startup idea wants as an investor. In other words, this walk we're taking along Pico Boulevard, thousands of people would kill for this opportunity. And I'm blowing it. Chris eventually drops the pretense that this is an actual investor meeting and just starts coaching me on my pitch, feeding me questions, and then correcting my answers. And so what's it going to take to do it? So it'll take... A million and a half dollars, I think. Um, and take out the I think. Yeah, it'll take a million and a half. I'm looking for a million and a half to two million dollars in seed no, stage no, no, funding. No, no, no. no. Yeah. You're looking for a very specific <laughs> amount of money. I'm looking for. A <laughs> Finally, after about an hour of this, I look over and see Chris holding up his hand. Give me a second, and I'm going to give you your pitch back. All right. But let me write down a couple things quick. Okay, great. And then, right there on the corner of Pico and Bundy, he steps into the role of me starts giving the pitch I should be giving. Hey, look, can I get two minutes from you? So here's the thing. You probably know me, producer of This American Life, a successful radio show, top of the podcast, and iTunes, et cetera. So here's the thing. I realize there's a hunger for this kind of content out there. There's none of this shit. It's just a bunch of jerk-off podcasts. Nothing's out there. Advertisers are dying for it. Users are dying for it. And if you look at the macro environment, we're seeing more and more podcast integrations into cars. People want this content. It's a whole new button on, in the latest version of iOS. So here's the thing. Nobody else can make this shit. I know how to make it better than anybody else in the world. And so I've already identified a few key areas where I know there's hunger for the podcast. You got the subject matter. We're going to launch this shit. I know there's advertisers who want to get involved with it. But here's the unfair advantage I have. Because of what I've done in my past careers with This American Life and with Planet Money, people are actually willing to just straight up pay for this stuff. And I'm not just talking about traditional subscriptions. I'm talking, we did this t-shirt experiment at Planet Money where we got $600,000 coming where people actually gave us money to buy a t-shirt with our logo on it as part of the content. It was integrated directly and I know we can replicate that across these other platforms. So here's what we're doing. We're putting together a million and a half dollars that's going to buy us 
three, four guys who are going to launch these three podcasts in the next 12 months. We think very easily we could get to three, 400,000 net subscribers across the whole thing. With CPMs where they are in this market right now, I know on advertising alone we could get to break even, but as we do more of this integration, we get people buying some of this product, doing some of these integrated episodes. I know that we're, we're going to have on our hands here something that will ultimately scale to be a network of 12, 15 podcasts. The audience is there. They want it. Nobody else can do it like we can. Are you in? That, that was amazing. That's your story, right? That is great. Holy shit. So what that was do, good. So good that I'm thinking, oh, if he pitched my idea that well, he must be into it, right? He's going to invest. But then he goes on. I could come at it from the other side. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Media is very, very hard, as you know. This content's really hard to consume. It's longer form. You're counting on people spending that kind of dedicated time. I mean, you're fighting an overall trend of attention and every other format is going to shorter and shorter content pieces. And so you're actually swimming upstream with that stuff. You have a lot of platform risk because you're depending upon Apple and Google to distribute your content. The kind of stuff you're doing with Planet Money is exciting, but it's all under the veil of being a nonprofit. People feel a moral obligation to contribute to those kinds of things. You come outside from under the public radio veil and you have to worry about whether people are gonna be a little bit jaded and feel like they don't necessarily need to donate to a for-profit company to make for-profit content for guys who are doing this for equity and hoping to get rich. You know, frankly, you think you might actually be uniquely qualified to do this, but we've started to see more and more news podcasts make their way up there. Some stuff from Khan Academy is moving up the ladder right now. So ultimately, you're not going to be the only guys in here, and it's going to be pretty competitive. Audio is kind of a niche market, and so... I don't know. I don't, I don't know if this is a fit for us. At this point, I have no idea what to think. I'm drained, my pits are drenched, and Chris Saka has just given me two completely convincing cases in favor of and against investing in my business. Whatever shred of conviction I had about this process at the beginning is gone. I also learned something about how investors like Chris see the companies they might invest in. I came out here thinking I could build a nice, profitable business, but Chris isn't looking for profitable. He's looking for Twitter, something huge. Or if not Twitter, then at least a company he could sell to Twitter. He asked me this question, what would the exit be? And by that he means, what large company will buy your company in three to five years so investors like me can get our money back at 10 to 100 times the amount we put in? I hadn't really thought about that question. I don't know if I want anyone to buy me. This experience with Chris makes me realize the simple vision I have, it's not a vision people like him are looking to invest in. Still, Chris is not saying no. Let's do this, he says. Go back, hone your pitch, and the next time you're out here, make it to my partner, Matt. He's from the media world. He worked at a big talent agency in Hollywood. If you can convince him, then I could see us doing something together. I say goodbye, get in my rental car, and head to the airport. All right, season one, episode one. This is me, the Alex Bloomberg of today, again. The events recorded in that episode that you just heard happened in April of 2014, almost exactly four years ago today, as of the time I'm recording this now. A lot has happened since then, but for those of you listening for the first time, maybe there's many of you, maybe there's just a couple of you, but for you, I won't give any spoilers. There's another four chapters to the story in your feed right now. The only thing I'll say is that I'm still talking to you on this podcast. 
And so you can draw from that any conclusions you want. And for those of you who are thinking, wait, what's all this about a TV show? Quick background on the whole Alex Inc. thing. It started a long time ago, not long after the episode you just listened to originally aired. A producer, John Davis, reached out to us saying he wanted to option the series. Option means he wants to pay us some money and then make it into a TV show, essentially. We said sure and didn't really think about it because the vast majority of things that are options do not end up on TV. Because there's a series of hoops a producer like John Davis has to jump through. And in any one of these hoops, the idea can just die. But John Davis kept clearing the hoops. First, he attached a big-name actor, Zach Braff. Then, because of Braff, networks were interested, so they actually commissioned a pilot script. Could have died at this point, but they ended up liking the pilot script, and so they decided to shoot the pilot and then actually make the first series. And now, here we are. It's actually happening. It airs Wednesday nights, 8.30 Eastern, 7.30 Central on ABC. And in the very first episode, there is a familiar voice. Chris Saka, the guy you heard me pitch. He and I are still in touch. And I called him up to interview him recently because, this is sort of strange, he actually plays himself in the first episode of Alex Inc. So thanks, man. It's, it's been a long time. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah. I'm excited too. And actually, I just uh, spent the week with uh, Zach. You did? Um, yeah. He was at our place in Montana. So, uh, yeah. But um, he's getting fired up, man. By Zach, he means Zach Braff. You know, the guy who starred in Scrubs and Garden State, that movie. Zach Braff is the main character in Alex and Key. He plays me, I guess is what you'd say. And Chris shows up in that first episode. Chris isn't exactly a stranger to television. He makes regular appearances on the TV show Shark Tank. But this was his first acting role where he was actually reading lines. Here he is in one of his scenes from Alex, Inc. It's a scene you might find familiar. Look, Alex, listen. If I were calling an Uber and it said it was going to be here in two minutes, and that's all the time you had, who are you and what are you doing? Go. And even though the character he was playing was literally himself, Chris told me it was still tough to get the hang of it. It was was funny. The, the, The most challenging thing for me was that the script were words I've actually said in real life. And so when I sat down to read it, I'm like, wait, these are things I literally (laughs) said on the podcast with Alex. Right. And then Zach was giving me direction on how to say them better. That was surreal. How to be a better, more approachable, more understandable and accessible me. Literally, you're playing what should be the easiest possible character for you to portray. Literally yourself saying words you've actually said. And you still needed direction. Oh, I needed tons. I cringe looking at it now because it's not actually the cadence of my voice. It's not how I say things. Yeah. But Zach, he really understands bigger audiences. And so he can tell when something I'm saying is being obtuse. Uh Uh, and, And how to make it more approachable and understandable. Is this your network television sitcom debut? This is, okay, so to clarify here, there was this whole moment during the shooting where they had asked me, hey, are you a member of the union? I said, yeah, I'm a member of the union. I got my after card. And halfway through the shooting of this show, somebody checked and realized I wasn't a member of SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, because oh. as a Shark Tank cast member, you need to have your after card, your, your television card. So I thought when I paid dues to one, I was paying dues to both. I was mistaken. And so as a result, we almost had a shutdown. Uh, it was a big thing because I was essentially a scab uh, there, a non-union actor <laughs> participating in the production. So luckily a bunch of people scrambled and somehow on a Sunday got me admitted to SAG uh, and we were able to proceed. Thank goodness. 
I will say for myself, it's been a little surreal watching the pilot of Alex Inc. Because obviously it's a TV comedy, so everything is different. They've changed a bunch of the stuff. But there are these things that are familiar. For example, the first episode of Alex Inc. has a scene based pretty directly on the podcast you just heard, the scene where I pitch Saka for the first time. Now, in real life, as you heard, we were on the street in L.A. On TV, we're in Chris's fictional penthouse Manhattan office with baskets on the wall. But Zach is pitching the real Chris Saka. Look, I've invested in Twitter, Uber, Instagram. Why should I invest in your podcast company? Well, first of all, it's not just any podcast company. It's the Cadillac of podcast companies. The people who use Cadillac as a reference? Mm. <laughs> Sorry, it's a, the Maybach, uh, the Khaleesi, the, the Leonardo DiCaprio. Wow. I got to say, when I watched it, I was like, I was expecting, I was, I mean, it's TV, obviously. It's completely different and everything, you know, everything's heightened and it's not a documentary. Uh, but um, there was moments where I was like, oh, that is something I would say. Or that it it didn't feel as far away from the actual me as I thought it would, actually. There was a couple of moments where it feels like, oh, that feels familiar, like, that's a thing I might say or do. How much similarity was was there between the him playing the character of me and, and the actual me in the actual pitch? I, I No matter how much he hammed it up, he couldn't have been as um, as pathetic as you were, <laughs> Alex. Come on, man. I mean, just that's this truly true. helpless. That's not true. <laughs> he tried. I he tried. I, I kept giving... I kept trying to pitch him, like... <laughs> tips on that like here's how here's how you could be even more flailing here's how you could be even more just drown, like nobody just drown. would believe Imagine america drowning. wouldn't believe it yeah going back to that very first pitch when we were on the street you and i i mean could you have imagined at that point that this would be that there that like three years later there'd be a television show about that moment starring zach braff and and featuring you <laughs> i mean the, the no of course not but at the same time, you know, I, I get stopped a lot in public. Um, my life has certainly changed over the last few years. Uh, and and I like it. it. I get stopped for, like, just incredibly positive reasons. Luckily, because people not, have seen you on Shark Tank and stuff. Yeah. You know, they stop and they, they're fans of Shark Tank. They Lots of kids want to take selfies and stuff like that. But I'm not kidding when I say a disproportionately high percentage of people, maybe like one in five Stop me because they love episode one, season one of Startup, mm -hmm. like a podcast, an audio experience. People come up and we're just so moved by the emotional journey of that pitch that I guess I'd say like, there's no way I would have imagined that Zach Braff is, you know, is is playing you in a in a prime time. You know, literally, I mean, the show is airing between the Goldbergs and Modern Family. I mean, there isn't a better time slot on television. <laughs> But no, so no, I didn't imagine that. But at the same time, there was some magic there. There uh -huh. was something really special that happened in that episode. There are countless podcasts and books and shows out there with advice for entrepreneurs and startups. And it's about marketing strategies and how to write better copy for the front page of your website and buzzwords to use in your bio and your social media strategy. Uh, but presumed in all of that stuff is this facade we all put up that we're totally in control of it. And nothing can phase us, and, and we've got this. And I think you're the first person to really pull that curtain back and just show your trembling knees and the mm -hmm. reality of not knowing what's next. And I think while 
along the way, things have been going really well for the company. With each day, you get up with that same trepidation. <laughs> and you're, and the better it goes, the more anxious I get. <laughs> right. If you, if you didn't feel that way, it wouldn't be right. Yeah. You, you know, and, yeah. and most of the best CEOs operate that way. Yeah. Uh, I know. That was such a bummer when I learned that, where I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> this is the thing that's going to make it successful is I have to feel this anxious all the time. <laughs> like, yeah. That's, that's like, that's the thing that if it goes away, then I'm in trouble. So here's to anxiety and its power to motivate. Thank you for the chat, Chris Saka, and thank you all for listening. The next episode of this binge drop is in your feeds right now. Go ahead and check it out. This special startup episode was produced by Luke Malone. It was edited by Devin Taylor, Annie Rostrasser, Lisa Child, Molly Messick, and me. Andrew Dunn mixed the episode. The music from the original episode you heard was by Tyler Strickland. Theme song and mixing by Mark Phillips. To subscribe to Startup, go to Apple Podcasts or whichever app you like to use. Gimlet Media has lots and lots of other podcasts. If you like this one, you might like the others as well. Check them all out on our website, gimletmedia.com, or just search Gimlet Media and that snazzy new podcast app that you are apparently using right now. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast Startup. Thanks for listening.